Nature's Archive Podcast, a Jumpstart Nature production. It's hard to imagine a time without roads. They connect us, facilitate commerce, allow us to reach hospitals, schools, family, and friends. And in plain sight, they grow in width, length, density, and traffic volume, slowly and continually. Amidst the sprawling network that shapes our lives, there's a realm often overlooked but equally profound, a domain where the intersection between humanity and nature takes an unforeseen twist. Our guest today is Ben Goldfarb, author of the new book, Crossings, How Road Ecology is Shaping the Future of Our Planet. You might remember Ben from a past episode where he discussed his book on beavers, appropriately titled Eager. And in typical Ben form, he reveals a hidden world in plain sight full of surprises. From rapid adaptation by some animals to the intractable ways that 70 mile per hour traffic hack many animals' ability to cope. Ben's book will be released on September 12th. You can find more details at bengoldfarb.com or check out the show notes. So in the meantime, get ready for a fascinating look at road ecology with Ben Goldfarb. Good morning, Ben. Welcome back to Nature's Archive. Thanks a lot for having me, Michael. I actually, you're one of the few Nature's Archive interviews that I will actually go back and listen to again. I hate to hear my voice that much. That's the reason. But uh, I think our previous discussion about beavers was just so interesting to me that I often refresh myself on some of your talking points. So I'm really looking forward to today's discussion, an entirely new discussion relating to your new book. Yeah, well, thanks for having me back. And I, I feel like you can't get enough beaver content. I, I, I don't blame you for returning to that conversation because beavers are endlessly fascinating. And I, I hope that uh, roads are too. Yeah. And, and roads are really getting a lot more play in media and especially in the ecological world. So I think this will be a fascinating conversation. Now, I'm not going to repeat too much of the background that we spoke about in the first episode. And rather, I'll recommend that listeners go back and listen to that and hear a little bit about you and how you got into environmental journalism in the first place. But let's pick up there. As an environmental journalist, how do you pick your topics? You found some really good ones. <laughs> yeah, I, I hope that's true. That's a great question, Michael. I mean, I think it's some of it is serendipity, right? You meet the right people and they're incredibly charismatic and sort of persuade you of the the worthiness of a certain topic. That's what happened with beavers for, for me was meeting this guy named Kent Woodruff, you know, the longtime director of the Metow Beaver Project in North Central Washington, this really charismatic beaver evangelist who, who sort of sold me on beavers as this wonderful topic, which certainly they turned out to be. And I think the same is, was true in, in the world of road ecology. You know, it was meeting and writing an article about this guy, Marcel Hauser, uh, a, a Dutch road ecologist now living in Montana who's, you know, really one of the leading researchers in the field. He was the one who kind of gave me the red pill, as they say, and brought me into the world of road ecology almost exactly 10 years ago. How do you define road ecology? Yeah, I'm still working on that. And, you know, I think that even some road ecologists are, are you know, trying to figure out exactly the tersest best definition. But, you know, I think that it's, it's sort of the some total of the ways in which roads interact with and shape nature. And uh, some of those effects are obvious. You know, road ecology is very concerned with roadkill, right? The carcass that you see lying on the side of the road, that's kind of the most conspicuous, invisible way that roads shape nature. But you've also got the noise of traffic, which is really affecting animal distributions. You know, you have the road salt that's applied as a de-icer that's changing aquatic ecosystem. 
you have roads cutting off wildlife migrations, you know, so animals aren't necessarily being killed by cars all the time. Sometimes the kind of the moving fence of traffic is enough to deter them from reaching critical habitats. So, you know, you have this vast spectrum of different road ecological impacts, and some are obvious and some I think are less so. Yeah, I'm looking forward to getting into both sides of that equation, the obvious and less obvious sides anyway, in your book. So we're going to talk about your book, Crossings, which remind me of the official release date. And, and maybe this is actually just a point where you can pitch how people can get it. Sure. Yeah. So, so the book is called Crossings, How Road Ecology is Shaping the Future of Our Planet. It's out on September 12th from W.W. W. Norton. And it's you know available everywhere that books are sold. Online retailers, certainly. You know, I'd be honored if you asked your local independent bookstore to shop it or requested it from the library. You can get it anywhere you can get a book. Sounds good. And I'll, I'll include a few links to the publisher page and elsewhere to make that easy for people in the show notes. So in the process of researching this book, when did this idea first start to coalesce? Like, hey, there's enough here that this would make an interesting book. It really it goes back a decade. So in 2013, I spent uh, a few months driving around the Northern Rockies, you know, Montana, Wyoming, British Columbia, Alberta, writing about wildlife conservation and habitat connectivity. This idea that we need sort of linked, connected habitats that animals seamlessly move through to, you know, meet all of their biological and ecological needs. And one of the projects that I had kind of caught wind of in the course of this reporting trip was a series of wildlife crossings, you know, an, an overpass and a bunch of underpasses for animals along Highway 93 in northern Montana on, uh, on the Flathead Reservation, uh, Confederated Salish and Kootenai tribal land. And I sort of requested a tour of these structures from this guy, Marcel Hauser, who's with the Western Transportation Institute in, in Missoula, and it's really done a lot of the monitoring of these crossings to see whether they're really reducing roadkill, to see what species are using them. And he took me on this day-long tour of these wildlife crossings along Highway 93. You know, the, the tour took, we went to a bunch of different wildlife underpasses. And then the final sort of stop on this tour was this big wildlife overpass that's used by elk and all kinds of other creatures. And so we, you know, Marcel opened a gate in the roadside fencing. We went up on top of this overpass as the sun was setting. And it was just this incredibly beautiful, inspiring moment to be on this remarkable piece of infrastructure that humans had built explicitly for wildlife. We obviously do so much uh, on this planet to, you know, to make animals' lives harder. Uh, and here was, you know, this kind of, dramatic way in which we were attempting to facilitate their movements rather than, you know, cut them off as we so often tend to do. And so I was really captivated by that. And I was also captivated by the kind of imaginative challenge of creating infrastructure for animals. Marcel talked a lot about the different habitat features that, you know, existed on this overpass and, and that should exist. Things like visual screens to prevent animals from being deterred by headlights sweeping over the overpass or little pockets of brush, you know, that might be planted to allow animals as small as meadow voles to pop scotch from feature to feature. So I just, I just loved that, that notion, you know, how do you build structures that appeal to an entire ecosystem in a sense. Obviously, every species has its own sort of habitat requirements and ecological niches. And how can you build infrastructure that checks all of those boxes for different species? So I, I loved the imaginative challenge there. From that, that evening, I think, in October 2013, I, was, I really felt like there's a potentially a wonderful book 
there. And, you know, beavers kind of intervened in my life for a few years and got me uh, off the road ecology beat. But, you know, as soon as the beaver book published in 2018, I knew the next project was going to be a book about road ecology. Yeah. So as you alluded to, road ecology is so much more than just roadkill that we often see. And in fact, in your book, you had mentioned that this topic has become an urgent topic in the world of ecology. Why is that? Yeah, I think it's a combination of factors. I think that one factor is that we've learned a lot more over the last two to three decades about how important it is that animals be able to access the entirety of their habitat and different types of habitat as well. I think that obviously the notion of habitat connectivity, you know, the fact that just like people, you know, animals need places to find food and meat and disperse to new territories. This notion of Connectivity and large landscape conservation, I think, you know, the scientific literature is just pointing us in that direction that we need large intact landscapes over which animals can move. And of course, roads are the structures that prevent animals from moving. I think that's part of it, this growing scientific emphasis on habitat connectivity. And then, you know, the other thing that makes it so urgent is that a lot more roads are being built, right? That's true to some extent in the United States, but it's especially true internationally in continents like Asia, Africa, South America, as well as Central America. New roads are being created all the time, frequently through remaining intact habitats, places that haven't had a lot of infrastructural development historically, but are experiencing it now. And, you know, certainly some of that infrastructure is important for human quality of life, just as, you know, you and I benefit from access to hospitals and schools and markets, which roads facilitate. Certainly some amount of road development is useful for human quality of life. But, you know, it's also important that that development doesn't occur in really uh, ecologically destructive ways. And that's what road ecology does. It, It points us towards ways to hopefully help that development lie lighter on the land. So that's a big part of why this topic is urgent as well. So hinting at some of the focus here of why it is an urgent topic, the, the, again, the title of the book, you begin with crossings. So can you tell me why you picked that in the context of connectivity? Yeah, I think for a few different reasons. I like the sort of the, you know, the multiple resonances of that word. I mean, first, of course, most obviously are, are wildlife crossings, right? Road ecology's primary tool for allowing animals to safely cross the highways. There's also the fact that Crossings also refers to the ways in which roads cross the land, the fact that our our continent is crisscrossed by this infrastructure for human convenience. And there's the fact that our journeys as humans are constantly crossing the journeys of wild animals. We're sort of moving forever at right angles with each other, you know, in these perpendicular vectors, you know, they're crossing the highway and just as we're driving down it and we cross paths often fatally for, for them. So I, I just liked, I like that kind of the multivalent resonance of that, that word crossings. Hey, nature enthusiast, do you want to be part of something bigger? Well, we're building a movement at Jumpstart Nature, and we've just added some new volunteers to help with our podcast and website. But this means our costs are going up too. I need to purchase software licenses to give them access to the production tools we use. For example, one media editing license costs $21 a month. And this is where you come in. Please consider supporting our mission by contributing to Jumpstart Nature through our Patreon or direct contributions, or even purchasing some logo merch. Check out all these options at jumpstartnature.com slash donate, also linked in the show notes. 
Not ready to make a financial contribution? Then please share this episode with three friends. Sharing what we do is actually one of the very best ways you can help us. Thank you all for your continued support. Yeah, and the thing that kind of stood out to me is in a way we're at a bit of a crossroads in our relationship with roads and infrastructure too. So that's a crossing of sort too. Yeah, I hadn't thought of that, but you're you're absolutely right. You know, I think that roads, this topic that was sort of long neglected by conservation, unfortunately, is increasingly in in the zeitgeist. That's kind of the one of the ironies of, of roads, you know, that I, I try to get at in the book is that there's such a fundamental, ubiquitous part of our daily lives that we almost don't see them anymore. We just use them constantly and kind of ignore them. As a result, I think we, for at least many of us, have failed to fully account for the ways in which they transform and and harm nature because we simply don't notice them. But I I think that we're at a crossroads, as you say, in the sense that we're increasingly becoming aware of of how uh, ecologically destructive they are and how important it is that we mitigate them somehow. And certainly we definitely take roads for granted. I, I mean, I'm guessing that before I was even aware of my surroundings and you know who my parents were, I probably had seen roads, but not known what they were. They've just always been there, at least for us here in industrialized cultures. So you mentioned that so many of the roads that we have, the infrastructure that we have that exists facilitates access. And I'm also recollecting from your book, there was a surprising agency who seems to be the largest, I don't know what the right word would be, maintainer of roads, developer of roads in the world. Manager, perhaps. Manager, yeah. I'll let you tell that story. Who is this surprising agency and and why do they have so many roads? Yeah, so the, the largest road manager in the world is very likely the U.S. Forest Service, which I think comes as a surprise, as a surprise to most people in that, you know, we think of the Forest Service as managing forests, you know, these large blocks of relatively in, intact habitats. But in fact, there are something like 400,000 miles of Forest Service roads. Some forests have higher road densities than New York City, believe it or not. And the reason is is basically... A lot of it is the, is the historic the, the historic timber industry. That's a, a big part of it. Cutting roads to access timber, and you know, a lot of it is is also the, the Forest Service's own compulsion to manage or steward or intervene in its own lands. It's kind of amazing to go back and and read some of the diaries of, of early Forest Service rangers talking about how important it was to open up this country with roads so that if a, a beetle infestation happens, you know, you can cut the, all those trees out and get the infestation out of there. If a fire happens, certainly a lot of early Forest Service roads and still today are built for the purposes of fighting wildfires. The other rationales included managing fisheries and wildlife. I think that the Forest Service is really emblematic of this this broader mindset that we humans are these enlightened stewards of nature and nature requires us in some ways to intervene on its behalf and roads are the way in which we get back there and do the intervening. So yeah, it's, it is pretty incredible to look at when you, you look at a zoomed out map of America's national forests, they, you know, there are this, these big green blocks of what looked like intact land and then you actually get out into many of them on the ground and, and they're just absolutely spiderwebbed with dirt roads and, and densities that uh, kind of beggar belief. There's so many interesting branching points and I, I was trying to come up with a road pun, but I, <laughs> I'll spare listeners any punniness. But you know, when I'm thinking about roads, there's a lot of unintended impacts of roads. 
And I think you spend a lot of time investigating that as part of this book. One thing that comes to mind for me, just to kind of get the conversation started when I'm thinking about, okay, all these roads in, in Forest Service land, and may, maybe from a satellite view, you can see the canopies are, are touching, but it still creates this, in a way, kind of like an edge habitat. And I often hear people talking about brown-headed cowbirds, for example, who really thrive in this edge habitat in their lifestyle, and it gives them an opening to maybe expand their range. Did you find any other interesting, unexpected impacts of roads, such as habitat expansion or actually species that are benefiting from this opening up? Roads are novel ecosystems in a lot of a lot of ways, you know, and every novel ecosystem has winners as well as losers. Obviously, scavengers kind of come to mind as, as you know, primary road beneficiaries, right? Our cars are out there killing deer and elk and pronghorn and other other critters, and that's being taken advantage of by turkey vultures and golden eagles and bald eagles and coyotes and ravens. There is this community of organisms that, you know, certainly benefits from the road, but the road is also, it's a dangerous resource, right? It can be an ecological trap. You're a a, a golden eagle who alights on an elk carcass by the side of the highway and fills your belly with meat. It's pretty hard to take off when the tractor trailer comes barreling down down the highway and, you know, certainly lots of scavengers fall victim. So the, you know, the road is kind of this, it is this resource, this form of bounty for at least some organisms, but, you know, it's certainly a a dangerous resource and and can become an ecological trap very easily. Yeah. And in fact, there was an interesting passage in the book where you talked about Sandra Jacobson's categories for animals that, how they behave when they're on the road and they're encountering traffic. And I think I I have the list here. There was non-responders, pausers, avoiders, and speeders. So can you tell me a little bit about that and how maybe how that relates to these animals interacting with this novel ecosystem and a novel entity like a car for the first time. Yeah, that's such a great paper. I'm glad you brought that up, Michael, because it, it really did sort of, when I, when I read Sandra's paper, it had kind of changed the way I thought about animals and how they direct with roads. So there's sort of this spectrum of responses. And when, as you say, you've got, you've got the non-responders and those are animals that basically cross roads, no matter what the traffic is. You know, you can sort of picture frogs and salamanders crossing a busy suburban street, migrating between forest to breeding pond in, in spring. Kind of like they're oblivious to what's going on there. Yeah. They're totally oblivious, right? They're just, they're just hopping across the street. They're bound and determined to get to that pond. And, you know, it doesn't really matter what the traffic rate is. They're just going to go for it. And they get crushed and mass in the process. Now you've got, then you've got the pausers. And those are animals like skunks or porcupines, you know, animals that sort of creep onto the road and then they're sort of startled by traffic and they stop. And I think that a lot of those animals, to me, that attests to the ways in which cars and traffic hijack evolutionary history in some ways, right? If you're the skunk, for example, spraying your disgusting scent is this incredible evolutionary defense mechanism, you know, that's evolved over many, many thousands of generations. And it works really well against a a fox, but it's totally useless against an SUV, right? And it's actually very maladaptive. You know, you stop in the middle of the road um, and of course you get flat and cars really, uh, again, they kind of hijack evolutionary history, I think. Speeders are deer, kind of the classic examples of speeders. And those are animals that they're basically looking for gaps in traffic. They're racing through those gaps. And if the gaps between cars are wide enough, they'll run between them. And it, But as the traffic rates 
increase and those gaps between cars get smaller and smaller, they really stop trying to shoot those gaps altogether and don't cross. And then the kind of the furthest end of the spectrum are those avoiders that you mentioned, you know, animals like grizzly bears that really shy away from even incredibly low volumes of traffic. And as a result, their populations often get fragmented by highways because they don't cross uh, at, at all. You know, even, even six cars an hour, according to some studies, is enough to prevent grizzly bears from crossing a, a very, very rural rural road. So you know, to me, I, mean, I think the takeaway there is that it's funny to think about the two ends of the spectrum, the, the non-responders and the animals that cross no matter what, and the avoiders, the animals that almost never cross roads and realize that, you know, in a way they're both kind of imprisoned by roads, right? One, because they are constantly getting flattened and another because they, you know, they don't attempt to, to cross at all. So, you know, no matter what your response to traffic is as a, as a wild animal, it's going to have negative impacts on your life history. This construct from Sandra Jacobson's paper is a really good way for, at least a framework anyway, to think about which animals are most impacted or, or maybe how to help those animals that are impacted in the different ways. So you talked about grizzly bears or some of these other non-responders on the other end of the spectrum being imprisoned. What's the outcome of that scenario? Because you might be thinking, okay, for a grizzly bear, they're not crossing the road, so they're not getting hit by a car. Uh, but there are other negative side effects of staying home, essentially. Yeah, it, it depends on the organism. But, you know, certainly in the case of grizzlies, you know, lots of research shows that they're genetically fragmented and isolated by highways, or at least certainly many populations are. They can't cross roads to find new mates and, you know, and, and their gene pools kind of stagnate as a result. The kind of the archetypal example of that you might talk about more later are the uh, mountain lions in Santa Monica Mountains near Los Angeles, which are so surrounded by freeways like the 101 that their male mountain lions in that population have ended up mating with their daughters and granddaughters and great granddaughters, you know, and now they're starting to develop kinked tails and undescended testicles and other sort of symptoms of chronic inbreeding. Certainly, there are genetic consequences to that, that kind of fragmentation. And there are also profound consequences for animal migrations as well. In the book, you know, I, re I read a lot about, uh, about mule deer migrations and, you know, the American West and places like Wyoming and Colorado, where I live, and Montana and elsewhere. You've got these, these herds, these migratory herds of mule deer and elk and pronghorn that need to move between habitats, especially in fall. They have to get down to those low elevation winter ranges and highways are preventing them from doing that. And as a result, there have been cases of mass starvation. Because, you know, highways like, like I-80 are preventing them from reaching these really critical winter pastures at, at lower elevations. So, you know, not crossing highways in, in some ways, as some research, researchers pointed out to me, you know, is almost more dangerous than attempting to cross. If you're a big herd of mule deer, the herd itself can survive a few road kills in all likelihood. It, what it can't survive is mass starvation because it hasn't been able to reach its, its winter range that barrier effect of roads can be even more harmful than roadkill itself. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I think this is one of the biggest eye-openers for me over the last several years that, as I've started to learn the impact of roads is the you know lack of gene flow and the trapping and then the resource access as well. That's something else is the, the landscape is always changing. Habitats are changing. There's always succession. Climate's changing. Everything is changing. So what maybe could have been a sustainable situation where there was water and food could change very quickly as climate changes, as the landscape changes too. And that forces animals to move 
even if it's not a migratory movement, it may be out of necessity for resource access as well. Certainly, yeah. I mean, think about the uh, you know the, the megafires that are increasingly prevalent in the in in the West. If you're a, a wild animal living in a place that's suffered uh, you know a megafire and is totally burned over, of course you need you need to find new habitat somewhere. And certainly, there are cases of roads preventing animals from doing that. So I think you're exactly right. You know, drought, fire, these other climatic conditions are increasing the imperative that animals be able to move between patches of habitat and roads are exactly the problem that are preventing them from doing that. So we've been talking about some of these maybe unexpected impacts of roads and fragmentation of habitat, but there was, you opened the book with a fascinating example that you know, I, I don't think a normal person <laughs> could have come up with, you know, if they were given 100 years to think about all of the potential impacts of roads. And that's how cliff swallows have responded. So can you tell me a little bit about what has been found with cliff swallows? Yeah, this is just some unbelievably interesting research done by Charles Brown, a cliff swallow biologist in, in Nebraska. And, you know, basically what he found through many many years, about three decades of cliff swallow surveys, is that cliff swallow roadkill has dramatically decreased over time. You know, cliff swallows, of course, they make these little mud nests up in the the kind of the, the girders and trusses of highway overpasses and bridges. And that infrastructure has furnished habitat for them. But of course, it's also very dangerous, right? You know, living on the bottom of a highway underpass or overpass, it's a pretty dangerous place to be. And, you know, certainly run the risk of getting hit by cars and trucks as you swoop around feeding and living your lives. What Charles found over many years was basically that cliff swallow roadkill has decreased dramatically. And when he examined the bodies of cliff swallows, many, many years and decades of specimens, what he found is that the wings of cliff swallows are becoming shorter over time. And the reason for that is that if you're a long-winged swallow, long wings are good for long, straight, powerful flights, whereas shorter wings are good for agility, you know, tight maneuvers, little rolls and pirouettes, you know, and those are exactly the maneuvers that you need to escape an oncoming 18-wheeler. If you're living under a highway or above a highway, rather, you know, you want those short wings to help you avoid traffic. And traffic is basically weeding out the long wing swallows and selecting for the shorter wing swallows. That's very rapid evolution driven by cars and trucks and traffic. And I just found that, you know, an incredibly powerful story on some levels. I mean, first, it just demonstrates how powerfully and dramatically and quickly roads have the ability to shape the natural world. I mean, that's, again, roads causing evolution in a matter of several decades, you know, a geologic blink of an eye. I also loved that story and, and opened the book with it because it's, you know, it's not exactly a, a hopeful story, but it's a story of, of adaptation, you know, and I, I think that when we think about the ecological effects of roads, it's very easy to just think about all of the catastrophic ones, you know, roadkill, habitat loss, noise pollution, et cetera. And of course, you know, all of those, all of those negative effects exist. And, and that's largely what the book's about. But roads are, they're, they're not just forces of destruction and habitat loss. They're also forces of habitat creation in a sense. And uh, all kinds of creatures have really interesting 
evolutionary and and uh, adaptive responses to roads. And you know, I'm interested in those those stories as well, rather than a very straightforward story of roads causing destruction. I like a more complicated story in which roads are novel ecosystems in their own right that induce all kinds of interesting ecological and biological responses. I just thought that was a fascinating story that kind of complicated the role of roads in some interesting ways. It's right in line with how I think about the world as well, because roads aren't going away and we need to understand what those impacts are so that we can do better. And seeing both sides of the coin, I think is really helpful. I'm sitting here thinking too, that if colonists were coming to North America, and of course this would not exist, but if they were coming and identifying all of the animals and species and giving them names, you know, giving them English names, and they found today's cliff swallows nesting under bridges, they would they'd probably be called bridge swallows. Like that's what that's what they become. They're more common under bridges than they are in their traditional native habitat, which is crazy to think about. And I think their range is actually expanding as well, since bridges are kind of everywhere. Yeah, yeah, ab- absolutely. You know, and you, and again, you see that with with lots of different organisms, like the meadow vole. You know, there's a great a great study from the, the 70s, I believe, that basically showed meadow voles expanding their range, sort of in tandem with the interstate highway system, following those kind of grassy verges, roadsides, and medians. This new form of habitat. The EPA put out a white paper some years ago that described vultures expanding their their habitat, basically, you know, in these linear strips along highways, black vultures moving north with the highway system. So, yeah, look, obviously, you know, roads are roads are destructive, but to assume that they're only destructive almost doesn't give wildlife enough credit, right? That wild animals are incredibly adaptable and intelligent and good at exploiting the resources that we provide for them. And, you know, it shouldn't come as a surprise that they, they figured out ways to exploit our, our road system as well. Yeah, absolutely. And they need some help on their own evolutionary timescale. Uh, you know, it seems like cl- cliff swallows are well positioned to rapidly adapt, whereas a mountain lion or a grizzly bear, it's a much slower reproductive cycle and some other behavioral differences are, are going to need some help to adapt and sustain. I wanted to pick up though on you, you started to talk about the roadside strips and the meadow voles. And I had a past guest on the podcast, Dr. Jarrett Daniels, who uh, he's an entomologist and has really looked at the importance of roadside vegetative management as a way to help with insect populations. So I'm curious if you uh, delve into those sorts of topics as well. You know, for example, I don't know what the statistics are, but if we just think about interstate roadsides, highway roadsides, all being managed by state entities, essentially, it seems like there's a lot of potential there for improvement. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I wish I'd talked to Jared Daniels. He sounds like uh, he would have been a good a good source for my book. <laughs> yeah, I think that there's something like 17 million acres of of roadside habitats uh, in the in the United States. So it's you know it's certainly uh, a, a big form of habitat of land. In some states in the Midwest, it's the largest form of public land in the entire state. And you know certainly there is a lot of a lot of potential there. You know you think about I mean one chapter of the book deals with monarch butterflies, the midwestern migration, not your California population. There I mean those those butterflies, you know, they're passing through the breadbasket, right? They're moving through these vast 
swaths of land that have been converted to corn and soy monocultures. There's not a lot of milkweed for them, not a lot of, of sustenance, with the exception of roadsides, which are in, in some ways the last wild places in these intensively agricultural cultivated landscapes. But as we talked about earlier, you know, roadsides are, they're, they're dangerous habitats as well, right? And, you know, certainly many millions of monarchs are, are, are killed by cars. We don't really think about insects as being roadkill exactly, but they certainly get hit. So there's a lot of, a lot of emphasis now on managing roadsides for pollinators. And, you know, I think broadly, that's certainly a, a good thing because these uh, insects need all of the habitat they can get. You know, they're definitely milkweed limited to a, a large extent. But at the same time, you know, we have to manage those roadside habitats in a way that acknowledges that they are potentially dangerous places. And there are things we can do, like moving that those habitats further from the shoulder, potentially, or higher up on embankments so that the butterflies, you know, are moving over traffic rather than directly in the in the midst of it. But to me, certainly, there's, there's potential there for roads to sustain pollinators, but we also have to be thoughtful about the negative impacts as well. Right. There's interesting ethical question in there where you could plant a bunch of milkweed or other native plants along the road and give a population a stronger likelihood of surviving. But at the same time, if it's done willy nilly, it's a, it's a trap, as you used before, an ecological trap to some extent. You're going to increase roadkill that much more as well. So on the population side, it sounds good. On the individual side, it's, it's really interesting to think about. And, and you mentioned early on, too, the impacts of road noise and how that can dissuade animals from even approaching in the first place. Can you elaborate a little bit on that? Yeah, certainly. Road noise is, is this huge pollutant. It's, it's funny. It's like it's such a like roads themselves. You know, it's such a, a part of our own lives. While I was working in this book, I lived in Spokane for the most part and eastern Washington. And, you know, I was living probably a quarter mile from I-90 and on this busy arterial. And I didn't quite realize the extent to which all of that noise was impacting me until you read the literature about the human health effects of road noise. And, you know, and realize that, I mean, that kind of constant racket that stress is raising our blood pressures and you know making us more susceptible to stroke and cardiac disease and all kinds of problems i mean i mean road noise is literally shortening our lifespans it's one of the great i think unsung public health crises of our, our time you know it has it has kind of a similar effect on wildlife as well you know there are lots of studies showing that animals avoid noisy areas, or they have to modulate their calls if you're an amphibian or a songbird to kind of be heard over the din. Road noise is really a form of habitat loss. You know, we don't really think about it in, in those terms, but if you're an animal, a wild animal, you know, your hearing is indispensable, right? That's how if you're an owl or a fox, you know, that's how you detect your prey. And if you're a prey species, that's how you detect your predator, right? It's primarily through hearing. And so if you can't hear, you're going to avoid that area. And I think like the most ingenious study to this effect that I, I write about uh, in, the, in the book is the Phantom Road Experiment, which was conducted in uh, Idaho by researchers at Boise State University. And basically what they did was they recorded the sound of traffic uh, and then they played the noise of the road in this otherwise unroaded forest during songbird migration season. And they found very clearly was that birds tended to avoid that noisy area. And the birds that did 
stick around were in worse body condition because they were sort of constantly having to look around for predators rather than hear them. And they fed less as a, as a result. So they were kind of skinnier and less equipped to complete their migration. So that was just a brilliant study that proved, I think, very conclusively that isolating noise as a variable road noise is, is still a huge issue. I love the way those researchers think when, when I hear a good study like that, where they've been able to isolate a single variable, because if it's, it's pretty easy to think in the flip side and try to look at an existing road and see what's going on there. But then at that point, so many other variables have been introduced. So the Phantom Road experiment, I, I just love that one. It's a, such a great example. Me too. Yeah. And you think about the implications of that too. There are some other studies that do look at who is successful near roads. And, you know, they found that as you said, they maybe modulate their calls or songs differently. But again, we're selecting winners and losers in that case, essentially changing the makeup of the food web around us. So we've talked about the physical impact of roads and the noise impact. What about the lights, the headlights, the street lights? What kind of impact does that have on the ecosystem? It's a great question. I mean, I, I actually wish I'd, I had addressed it more in the book, honestly. There's a lot about noise in there and, and less about light pollution. Certainly, light pollution is a, a huge, a huge issue, obviously, for so many nocturnal species that rely on darkness and to hunt and to avoid predators and to feed. If headlights or street lights deprive them of that darkness, that, like road noise, is a, a form of habitat loss, you know? And I, I think that's, I mean, that's something that wildlife crossing designers and engineers are increasingly conscious of the fact that you can have this wonderful wildlife crossing, but as research shows, if that crossing is brightly lit and noisy, animals are less inclined to use it. And you have kind of a, an ineffective crossing as a, as a result. I'm sure we'll end up talking about the famous uh, Liberty Canyon crossing over US 101 outside of Los Angeles, you know, and there, I mean, the, the designers really got into great pains to mask some of those light pollution impacts through vegetated screens and burns and walls and other, other measures. So I think that light pollution, like noise pollution, is something that ecologists are increasingly cognizant of and, you know, are trying to manage. Absolutely. And before we get into the Liberty Canyon crossing, I wanted to get back to as well, I jotted down, you mentioned like salts and de-icing chemicals and things like that. I admit I've, I've spent very little time looking at that. I mean, I, obviously it would impact the ability for plants to grow because you're changing the composition of the soil near those roads. What other impacts do chemical treatments have on roadside ecology? Yeah, it's a, it's, a, it's a great question. And, you know, I mean, certainly it, it makes sense that you haven't thought about it because you live in California, you know, a place where it's not <laughs> it's not really necessary, you know, but road salt as a de-icer is applied in, in just mind-blowing volume in the upper Midwest and New England, places where roads freeze. And it has huge impacts on so many levels. You know, there are many, many studies showing that it does everything from make frogs more susceptible to disease, to stunting the growth of everything from plankton to trout. Many lakes and, and streams are becoming brackish, kind of a famous case where marine crabs infiltrated a, a stream in Canada because it was so salty that they were able to survive. It's one of the ways in which roads are an ecological trap as well, right? I mean, many animals are salt limited. They crave salt. Creatures like moose and bighorn sheep, you know, end up going to roadsides to lap at these little salt ponds and wetlands that form along along roadsides and even lick parked cars in winter and you know obviously anything that draws animals 
closer to the road or even onto the road is going to be really, really dangerous for them. So there are you know, lots of studies showing that road salt enhances this ecological trap effect. So road salt, again, I mean, it's something that uh, we kind of take for granted in a lot of ways or, or don't even notice. I mean, certainly it is useful to a very large extent. It's saved lives, many human lives, undoubtedly, by preventing car crashes. But, uh, you know, it certainly has ecological consequences. And I guess looking to the future, this may be way too much speculation. It's obviously really important for a car-centric culture. So an obvious improvement would be mass transit systems, better mass transit systems that are safer. Do you know of any chemistry or other, you know, maybe interesting design or engineering solutions to having to apply salts to improve safety of roads? Yeah, there are a couple of research groups working on different de-icing chemicals, you know, some that are derived from beets, some that are derived from, I think, apples, other agricultural waste products. And those have some potential, certainly. The beet thing, I think people complain about the smell of beet smothered roads sometimes. And, uh, you know, so I mean, there there are other options out there that are, are being developed. But, you know, salt is just so ubiquitous. It's so cheap going to be uh, very hard to dethrone, I think. All right. So we've mentioned a couple times the mountain lions in LA and the Liberty Canyon crossing. And for a deep dive on that, I'm going to point people back to an episode I did with Beth Pratt, probably a little over a year ago. But uh, there was an article in the LA Times last year about this crossing. It's called the Wallace Annenberg Wildlife Crossing at Liberty Canyon. It's a mouthful. I think the title of that article was something like, the age of wildlife crossings, or that was the point that they were making in the article. Do you agree that we're entering an age of wildlife crossings? Yeah, I do. I do think that's a a fair and and accurate statement, you know, and certainly Liberty Canyon has a lot to do with that. It's this incredibly high profile, certainly the highest profile wildlife crossing ever built by virtue of being, you know, very close to giant megalopolis and crossing the busiest freeway in the country. You know, it also has as its mascot P-22, who was probably the most famous wild animal in the country, thanks in large part to Beth's advocacy and promotion. So, you know, I think that Liberty Canyon did a, a huge amount to raise the profile of wildlife crossings and make them appear to be a, a viable solution. You know, I mean, I mean, the kind of the interesting thing about Liberty Canyon, about the Wallace Annenberg wildlife crossing, is that it was it's built or it is being built primarily with private donations, right? And like there is some public money in there from Caltrans, but you know it's, it's mostly private funding, and you know that's good that that philanthropy exists. But you know I think that that ultimately the goal here is just to get wildlife crossings embedded in the public transportation budgets, because certainly the public has an interest in making the highways safer, both for wildlife and for drivers. I think that Beth would say the say the exact same thing that Liberty Canyon, you know, is is this famous, iconic, galvanizing project, but that, you know, ultimately the goal is to get these things just embedded in transportation budgets as due course. And that's starting to happen. I mean, the, the, the 2021 Infrastructure Act included the Wildlife Crossings Pilot Program, this $350 million grant program that's going to fund many new crossings around the country. Lots of states, you know, California, Utah, Colorado, New Mexico, you you name it, every Western state, you know, recently passed some kind of bill allocating state funding for, for new wildlife crossings. So we are entering an age of wildlife crossings, although I would, you know, I'd, I'd argue that we're not there yet. Certainly $350 million in, in the federal budget sounds 
good. That sounds like a lot, but that's, I mean, that's basically enough to cover all of the wildlife vehicle collision hotspots in California and not a whole lot else, you know? So, so the, the need is immense and the funding is maybe starting to chip away at that need, but the need still is certainly exists and is going to exist for decades probably. Yeah. One of the things that gives me some optimism is that I know that some agencies, they're looking at this from a perspective of not necessarily building new infrastructure as you know a mitigation to existing infrastructure, but being opportunistic. And when there are new projects like rebuilding bridges or widening roads or repaving or whatever the case might be, trying to then use that as an opportunity, we're already going to dig up the ground. We're already going to do all this other work to now let's make this safer and while maybe that's not the pace that, that we would all like to see, it's a little more effective from a money expenditure standpoint anyway. You mentioned I-80 a few times, and I'm thinking about the Annenberg crossing and how visible that's going to be to people. And it's almost going to be like a giant billboard saying, this is some of what we need to repair or mitigate the damage that we're doing. And when I was crossing I-80 in Northern Nevada, there were, there were several crossings that are very obvious there. There's no signage or anything on them, which is almost a lost opportunity in a way. But it did make me realize that while those are visible, but unsigned, it took me a while to recognize them for what they were. So people probably see crossings, especially when they're in some of these states that that have them. But then there's also a lot of crossings that are unseen, culverts or, or other things, other designs. So I don't have a great question to ask about that other than maybe what what are some of the more creative designs or integrations you've seen to facilitate crossing through roads that aren't like these massive infrastructure projects? Yeah, it's a great sort of non-question, but it's a no, it's a, it's a great it's a great question, Michael. Yeah, because I, I think you're exactly right that these big overpasses like Liberty Canyon Crossing, like the I-80 crossings in Nevada for mule deer, which have been incredibly effective, those those ones that you saw, you know, certainly, you know, those are great at raising awareness and you know, as you say, they, they kind of serve as a billboard for the importance of connectivity, but they are the most expensive wildlife crossings out there. And, you know, certainly you can get a lot of bang for your buck, you know, by doing some cheaper retrofits. You know, you mentioned culverts and, uh, you know, I'm just sort of fascinated by culverts. Always, always have been, you know, they kind of interact both with road ecology and also with beavers. Beavers are constantly damming up culverts. I I think I'm probably the the only writer ever to have a a chapter about culverts in every book that he writes. And, uh, you know, and and there's there's a lot that can be done with culverts. You know, culverts are these kind of these inconspicuous, humble stream crossings, right? These pipe concrete rectangular boxes through which, you know, water flows beneath roadways. And there's a lot that we can do to, to, to turn those into, into wildlife crossings very cheaply. You picture like a corrugated steel pipe that, you know, that runs under a roadway. Well, you, know, you can add a little shelf to that, basically, just a, a little metal catwalk that it keeps small mammals like voles and shrews and weasels high and dry and they can cross safely. I mean, the same, the same thing in, you know, in these kind of larger concrete box culverts. You can add a couple of shelves and, you know, suddenly that's a, a little highway for bobcats and other critters, you know. And so these are the, I mean, there are all of these really low cost tweaks that we can make to existing infrastructure to make them effective crossings. And, you know, I mean, one of those tweaks is just adding, adding fences to things. People talk about the wildlife crossings, you know, these big, beautiful, like 
tectonic structures that animals move across. Certainly those are great, but they don't really work without fences. We don't really think about fences because they're just so banal in a, in a way. But you need those fences there to direct animals to the crossings and keep them off of the, off of the roads. You know, crossings don't really work in the absence of good fences. And, you know, there are a lot of places where you can just add fences to both sides of an existing culvert and direct animals to that culvert rather than having them cross uh, across the surface of the road. And you've basically created a wildlife crossing where one didn't exist previously. So it's great to build cool, fancy new stuff like the Liberty Canyon crossing. But, you know, there's also a lot of retrofitting we can do to existing infrastructure to make it more wildlife friendly. Yeah, absolutely. And it it goes back to the nuance of the discussion. There's a couple layers of nuance from what you just said. For one thing, as a former tech designer, I'm thinking about use cases and different animals have different needs. So, you know, there's a need for both for sure. Fixing existing infrastructure doesn't fix it for all animals. It fixes it for some animals and that's an improvement. And if it's cost effective, why not? And then the other aspect that I really like about this discussion is it's a case where fencing is helpful. And I think a lot of environmental advocates are so used to just tearing down fences because that does block connectivity in a lot of cases. If it's just a ranch land fence or something like that, a, a pronghorn can't jump over or a coyote can't get under, or, you know, whatever the case might be. We forget about why and we forget about the application. So like, here's a case where fencing is really helpful. And I, I just love that contradiction from how we often think about fencing. Yeah, then, you know, there's kind of road ecology has, has kind of a, a sister science called fence ecology, um, <laughs> which is, you know, is sort of increasingly prominent. And that's, I mean, I think that's the takeaway from fence ecology too, right? Is that, as it, you know, as you, as you say, we hear these structures, these linear barriers like roads that are, are incredibly ecologically deleterious and restrictive of animal movements. And they're, you know, and they're, and they're so, I mean, they're just so abundant, right? That there's something like 17 times more fences than roads in the United States. So they're just, you know, they're, they're just everywhere and they're incredibly harmful. But at least in, in this case, yeah, in the world of road ecology, they, they have a really important role to play in funneling animals where we want them to cross roads. So if you could... Thinking about the big picture and where we're going and, and where the problems are, if you could just snap your fingers and find a better balance between wildlife needs and human needs in the context of road infrastructure, you know, what would that future world look like to you? Yeah, that's a that's such a good question, Michael. And I wish I had a, a great answer. I mean, one of the, one of the the tensions I think of wildlife crossings, one of the things that gives me pause about them sometimes is the fact that they don't, you know, like they don't really challenge our car dominated society, right? They're, you know, they're a way of, I don't want to say greenwashing our roads. That's not the, really the right word. Basically taking this crazy, catastrophic, car oriented civilization we have and making it like a little bit less terrible without actually challenging the car's dominance. And, you know, that's certainly that's, that's not, that's not me saying that I'm anti wildlife crossing, quite the opposite. But we also need to think about, I think larger systemic solutions. You know, you mentioned the importance of more public transit, getting people out of cars. And that's obviously a, a really, a really important one. At the same time, it's challenging because, I mean, the car is just so, it's just so entrenched. It's so hard to overthrow. And, and I think that one of the tensions is that, you know, road ecology problems, places where 
highways are going through important habitats or, you know, are, are disproportionately concentrated in relatively rural places where the car is really a necessity in a lot of ways. You know, it's fantastic to get cars out of places like New York City and the Bay Area. And certainly we should be trying to do more of that. But here in rural Colorado, where I live, it's sort of hard to envision the, the, the transit system that is going to replace the car. We just have such, you know, low population densities and so many highways through critical migration corridors. And it's just so hard to envision a car-free future in rural central Colorado. That's the kind of place where, you know, where wildlife crossings are essential, you know, places we're going to have car culture for the foreseeable future, you know, but certainly we should be doing everything we can to get people out of cars in the places where that is possible. Yeah. I mean, animals pick their migratory routes for the same reasons we pick ours, because they're relatively easier places to <laughs> to move through. So it makes sense that roads and, and animals are going to continue to come into contact, especially in places like that. Now, what can individuals do, like someone listening to this podcast, for example, to help in the world of connectivity and road ecology? Like, Are there any community science or citizen science projects related to connectivity or other unique ways you found to make a difference? Certainly, I mean, citizen science is really powerful or community science or participatory science, you know, whatever term you want to use for it. That's kind of one of the, one of the beautiful things about participatory road ecology is that it doesn't really require any special expertise to identify a dead raccoon or a skunk by the side of the road. And there are many programs and apps that collect that data and use that data. And, you know, there are some wonderful case studies of community collected data informing the location of wildlife crossings or, you know, or, or contributing to our understanding of the range of species. Roadkill, you know, for all of its tragedy is also this really useful scientific tool. And in, in, in some ways, you know, it's this kind of constant sampling system, you know, that's like having a bunch of camera traps out animals across the road. And unfortunately, they get hit. And that's valuable data about where wildlife lives and how dense their populations are. There are many, many studies that have made good use of roadkill, you know, often using community collected data. So that's one way I think of kind of redeeming this catastrophic form of death is to make use of that data in, in ways that ultimately in, inform conservation. For your California listeners, you know, I'm sure that many of them are already participants in the, the California roadkill observation system. And I mean, lots of other apps out there, you know, many international ones as well. And certainly we need, we need more of that. We need more people sort of participating in roadkill science because, you know, I, th I think that the kind of the critical thing about that too is that if you're, if you take part in that community science, you know, you also become the kind of person who notices roadkill. And if you become the kind of person who notices roadkill, you become the kind of person, I think, who supports its prevention and advocates for more wildlife crossings and these larger kind of infrastructural solutions. And I like that aspect of roadkill citizen science is that it just makes us aware of this, this really kind of ubiquitous problem and turns us into advocates for its prevention. Right. And now, okay, we've gone, at least I've seen from your personal trajectory going from beavers to road ecology, what's next? 
Oh man, Michael, I was afraid you were going to ask me that. Yeah, <laughs> I don't, I don't, I don't know. I don't know. You know, if, if you have suggestions for me, I'm, I'm certainly taking them, and I'll, I'll, I'll take them from listeners too. Uh, yeah, I don't know. I feel, I feel really fortunate to have stumbled upon two incredibly rich, fascinating topics that together have sustained my passion and attention for a decade, and and they're going to be tough acts to follow. But I'm sure. Look, the world is full of both conservation crises and solutions that uh, deserve books, and uh, you know, I'm sure I'll find something something good to uh, work on next. Yeah, it's quite a commitment to do what you do with these books, the amount of time and research and places you visited. It's really awe-inspiring to me to see that commitment. And I'm looking forward to seeing what does percolate to the top for you next. If people do want to follow you or your work, where can they go? Yeah, they can certainly check out my website, which is just uh, bengoldfarb.com or find me on Twitter, which is probably my most active social media platform or, or Instagram. And Crossing said his book is, is available through all the usual outlets and hopefully everywhere books are sold. So I, I yeah, I, I really, I hope, I don't know, to, you know, to me, I mean, I wouldn't, I wouldn't have done it. I wouldn't be talking to you, Michael, if I didn't think it was important. It's a book that I, you know, poured a lot of myself into and, and because I, I just care about the topic or I've come to care about the topic so, so deeply. And I truly hope that, uh, you know, that book can do some amount of good for the wildlife that our infrastructure harms so catastrophically. So uh, I hope you all enjoy it. Yeah. And I definitely recommend if, you know, someone is on Twitter, for example, following you because you reshare and post a lot of stories relevant to both beavers and road ecology. So if anyone's interested in this topic, you seem to be a good source for current articles out there. (laughs) I'm just chuckling because I, I saw I saw you you posted an article just a, a day or two ago. You mentioned culverts, and you were excited because this article had culverts in their lead. So. <laughs> yeah, in the, in the in the New Yorker, more attention for culverts, you know. But no, but I, I but there's there's so much news to share, you know, in both of these both of these realms right now. You know, you mentioned that it's sort of the age of wildlife crossings. It's also the age of beavers in in a, a lot of respects, right? That this you know this humble rodent that was perceived as as a source of fur or a pest, you know, for many centuries, you know, is now I think widely perceived as this this you know crucial conservation solution, which you know it certainly is. It's been fun to kind of ride the wave of these two topics that I, I think have really uh, entered the, the conservation zeitgeist in the, the last five to 10 years. Well, thank you so much for the work that you do and for taking the time today to talk about it. I really appreciate it. And I look forward to seeing what comes next. Thanks a lot, Michael. Appreciate your time. And uh, thanks for having me on. Thanks for sticking through the entire episode. If you made it this far, I hope that it means that you enjoyed it. If so, please spread the word and share this episode with three friends or groups that you think would enjoy it too. As for today's episode, let me know. Did I miss anything? Was there a topic I should have covered? Let me know at podcast at jumpstartnature.com or DM me on any of my social accounts. I'll do my best to answer your questions. You can find me at Nature's Archive, one word, on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. I also share photography, nature stories, and much more on those accounts, so you can follow just to stay in touch too. And despite being called crazy by numerous friends and colleagues, last year I left my tech career behind to start Jumpstart Nature, which Nature's Archive is now part of. For the sake of myself, my family, and the planet, I need to make this work. So please also consider becoming a patron at patreon.com slash jumpstartnature. I offer some exclusive content and perks, and you can start donations as low as $4 a month. Lastly, please also check out our latest creation. It's the Jumpstart Nature podcast. We just completed our pilot season, where each episode reveals an unseen, surprising, or misunderstood nature topic with the help of experts and our host, Griff Griffith. It's entertaining and inspiring, 
and even reached number three on the Apple Nature podcast charts. There's much more on our roadmap, but we need your support. So check out jumpstartnature.com for more details. Thank you. Thank you.